start from verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me collar and ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Let me just pray for us before we begin properly. Father, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that we can always have hope in you. And so we pray that as we think of the topic of pain, that you would help us to go out rejoicing in you and knowing the steadfast love you've shown us in Christ and therefore rejoicing with hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to think a lot this morning about what the Bible says about pain and how we can prepare for the reality of it. Before we do that, just a couple of minutes where you're sitting in groups. You'll find on page 14 of your booklets the handout for this morning's session. Page 14, you've got three discussion questions there, just in twos and threes where you are. How does the world around us respond to pain and suffering? What's good about that? What's lacking? And then how do we ourselves, when faced with personal pain and tragedy, respond? Just spend a couple of minutes talking about those questions. I'll call us back together after that. Okay. Uh, not nearly long enough to get into those questions, I'm sure. Hopefully we're just starting to get our heads into the topic. I want to start then uh, with a rhetorical question. I won't get you to answer this one. But where do you see yourself in 10 years? That's a question that my student minister used to ask at the end of term every year in our, our end of term service. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I'm really conscious that this January marks for me uh, the kind of closing stretch of my time in St Andrews, that God willing by the summer, uh, Jody and Billy and I will be moving on to pastures new. And as I've reflected on it, even just in preparing this seminar, I, I hope and I pray that if we bump into each other in 10 years' time, uh, you'll be able to tell me that the last 10 years of your life has been one of, have been years of blessing, of prosperity, of great happiness. Maybe you see yourself in 10 years uh, with a family of your own, uh, marrying that person who uh, you love, who, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say there, who makes your life happy. <laughs> um, marrying the person of your dreams, being in the fulfilling career you've always been dreaming of, you've been working towards, and obviously hope, I hope and pray that you'll be actively serving in a church where you're being fed, where you're being nourished in God's word, and where you're building up God's people. And I really do hope and pray that's the case. But as I ask the question, I'm also conscious of a hard reality that all of us know, and which we very rarely like to dwell on. Life is hard. The world is broken. And none of us can do anything to guarantee that the next 10 years, next 10 days, even the next 10 hours, will go anything like the way we want them to. So even as I hope and pray that the years ahead for all of us will be years of blessing beyond our imagination, years of love, of friendship, of growing families and fulfilling jobs, 
I'm conscious that there may also be years of great uncertainty. There may be years of great disappointment. <coughs> Maybe the future for us means not getting that London grad job we want, even though we've jumped through all the right hoops. Maybe the years ahead for us mean not finding the man or woman of our dreams, no matter how much we find our hearts aching with loneliness. And there may even be years in which we face great, great pain. Watching cherished family members suffer with illness, losing dear friends with no warning, actually getting everything we dreamed of, the family, the house, the job, the car, the dog, and losing it all through financial trouble, through relational breakdown, or through bereavement. Friends, we don't know when pain will enter our lives. We don't know when we might experience our worst. It might be in the next 10 years, it might be the next 20, 30, or 50. I'm conscious that for many in this room, it may even be that we're going through it right now, or that even in our relatively young lives, we've already experienced protracted periods of great pain and suffering. If not in this room, we can certainly guarantee that on any given Sunday in our church family, we are meeting to hear God's word with people who are going through untold difficulty and tragedy. We just don't know. Pain, one way or another, is going to come for us all. Now, I know that's a really hard truth to confront. So let me right away confront it with another, deeper truth, and then ask two questions. In prepping this seminar, I've been really, really helped by this book. Therefore, I have hope, about which I will say more later. But I want to uh, quote a talk that I heard by the author of the book. He once said, hard doctrines are incredibly useful in tragedy. So uncomfortable as the truth and reality of pain is, the deeper, wonderful truth of Scripture is that even when we are standing squarely in the middle of our worst, even when we experience pain which feels too great to bear, there actually is real comfort, real life-giving hope, even real and tangible joy for us if our trust is in Christ. The gospel by which we have been saved, by which God is growing us more and more like Christ, is the same gospel which God in his kindness uses to sustain and comfort us throughout the whole of our lives. That is the core thing that I want all of us to grasp this afternoon. If you remember one thing from this seminar, in fact, if you remember one thing that I've ever said to you ever, let it be that, that the gospel which has saved us, which God is using to grow us, is the same gospel which God, in his kindness, will use to sustain and comfort us throughout the whole of our lives. That's the core truth with which we confront the reality of pain. And here are the two questions, then, that we want to reflect on in the rest of our time. How? How will the gospel comfort, sustain, and redeem me in the pain which, sadly, but surely does lie ahead for me and then what what can I do in my life as a believer now to be equipped for the fiery trial when it inevitably comes 
Now, I realize those are two pretty huge questions which we want to at least begin to answer today, and we're going to start by doing a bit of work in groups. You'll see uh, on your handouts there that I've put a few psalms chosen purely because they're favorites of mine uh, and for no other great reason, but I wanted to look at some good examples of how people in the Bible, and real people, by the way, we can sometimes think that the writers of Scripture were somehow these super believers, but we see reading the Psalms that they're people just like you and me, and we read of how they respond to pain and personal crisis. So there's three Psalms. I won't get you to look at all of them. Uh, can I get uh, what this half of the room look at Psalm 13, uh, this half of the room look at Psalm 42, and then grown-ups at the back can look at Psalm 130 and just have a go at answering those questions. What's the psalmist's emotional state? What does he do? How does it help? Okay, um, sorry to cut across us once more. Um, I'm conscious that we're rattling through this and there's not nearly enough time uh, to really get into these questions, but do please take those handouts away, read those psalms, reflect more. Uh, a few lessons I think we enjoyed from the Psalms, not just these ones, there's loads of Psalms like this, Psalms of lament, Psalms of pain and anguish. And first and foremost, most, sim- most simplistically of all, God's people are not immune to pain, suffering and anguish. Uh, the, the Psalms, these ones, others, really drip with human pain and suffering and emotion in a really unrestrained way, in a way that actually uh, a kind of ancient Near Eastern culture was a lot more attuned with than we are in the modern West today. Being able to just cry out and wail and weep and lament, that's something that God's people are not now and have never been immune to. Uh, Belonging to Jesus, regrettably, is not a guarantee of an easy or prosperous life. But then, really encouragingly, when we read Psalms like these ones, we also see this, this really wonderful thing that while we are not immune from pain and suffering, we have a God who really is big enough to listen with patience and tenderness to our laments, our weeping, our anguish, even our doubts. Uh, John T. mentioned earlier that we can sometimes feel in the Christian life that when we're having a good day, God loves us. When we're uh, not having such a good day, then he must be slightly disappointed. And we can apply that same thing to when we're going through difficulties. We can think that, well, all I can do is paper on it a smile, say it's fine, say I know God's love, God loves me, and pretend that everything's okay because we're afraid to voice our doubts and our anguish to him, afraid that he'll be disappointed that we don't have enough faith. We see in the Psalms that God is so much bigger than our doubts, so much bigger even than our pain, And he actually delights to listen to us, bringing it before him. And we can be assured that he hears us and responds with great patience and tenderness. And because of that, God is able to redeem and to restore even the most desperate of situations with the most foundational of truths. A thing that I love in all of these Psalms is that nothing ever changes for the psalmist. We don't read the last verse of each of them saying, it was rubbish, but it's okay because I prayed and then God made everything better and now life is good. By the end of them, David is still surrounded by enemies. The sons of Korah are still in anguished desperation. The watchmen still wait for the morning. Israel still longs to be in the temple praising God. Their situation materially hasn't changed one bit. And yet, what we do see 
is God responding to the weeping and lament of his people by assuring them of the truths of who he is, what he has done, how they can hope and trust in him. While the situation hasn't changed at all, what has changed even more wonderfully for the psalmist is that they are more acutely aware of God's steadfast love, of the certainty of his promises, and therefore the surety of their hope. It is preaching these truths to themselves, which changes nothing and also everything for the psalmists in those psalms. Back to Cameron Cole, the guy who wrote this book, and he puts it like this, God will not necessarily ease our pain, but he will always give us hope through his word and spirit. I said we'd look back to this book later. Some of you will have heard me talking about this book in sermons before. Cameron Cole, the guy who wrote it, his worst came 10 years ago when his uh, three-year-old... Sorry, it's, it's like impossible to like uh, talk about this now when you become a parent um, without this happening. But uh, his three-year-old son died in his sleep uh, with no explanation. And uh, as you can probably tell, I can't imagine anything worse than that. And yet, Cameron Cole consistently talks about how, since that happened, it was the doctrines that he had been taught since childhood that brought him, that bring him through that loss each day. So how does that work? Well, he identifies 12 areas which really help him and form what he calls a narrative of hope. And really, I really wanted in this seminar to pick two or three particularly good ones from the book and walk us through them. But as I read it, each chapter I thought, that's too good to leave out. And so I want to just briefly, as briefly as we can, walk through all 12 of the things that he identifies before focusing on resurrection in particular. And I would love to chat more about any or all of these afterwards if you want to come and grab me. These are 12 truths that comfort, sustain, and redeem in tragedy. And for each one, there's a verse or two that he identifies as being particularly resonant with them. So first of all, grace. Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. One of the paralyzing thoughts that creeps in when tragedy hits is how can I get through life now? How can I go on knowing that that person who I've been in love with for years and years has just told me they don't feel the same way and never will? What do I do now that I've been kicked off my course, the, the course that I've put all my identity into for the last three, four years, how do I get through the rest of my days without the loved one I've just lost? How do I even get through the next day without them by my side? God is gracious to us. Gracious primarily, of course, in how he has saved us, but also gracious enough, therefore, to listen to our prayers day by day, hour by hour. It's in trusting God to give us grace enough to get through the next hour that he shows himself faithful to get us through our darkest days, weeks and years. God's grace is sustaining us minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day and we can always call out to him for more of it. 
grace, then gospel, John 11, 25 to 26, these wonderful words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Why is this a, a helpful truth to remember in tragedy? Well, right at the heart of the gospel lies the fact that mankind is utterly impotent, utterly powerless to save ourselves. Uh, people, you will sometimes hear them saying when you're going through a hard time, and they mean well when they say it, God will never give you more than you can bear. It's nonsense. The gospel reminds us that none of us can bear the weight of our sin. Christ did that for us. And so when we feel like we're suffering way beyond what we can bear ourselves, the dynamics of the gospel become all the more glorious. We have a God who has proven himself so faithful in bearing our heaviest burdens for us. The dynamics of the gospel become so much more glorious when we're going through the season of our worst. Then resurrection I will come back to this later, but what Paul's point is in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the resurrection happened. Guys, that matters. That matters because we know as Christians that we do not live in a world of blind and pitiless indifference, as Richard Dawkins once put it. We inhabit the same human history in which Christ rose from the dead. And that actually does change everything, as we'll think about in more detail later. Then what about faith? Psalm 40, verses 1 to 2. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. How does faith help us in tragedy? Well, not in the flippant way that we sometimes talk about it. Just have a little more faith. And we don't know what on earth that means. Or even in the really sinister way that people sometimes will hear, will hear talking about. If you had more faith, this difficulty wouldn't be happening to you. But faith, as the Bible records it so often, as leaning more and more fully into Christ and relying more entirely upon him. It's in our moments of deepest tragedy that our faith becomes all the more real to us. When we have the, the real sense of knowing that we ourselves can't do anything to struggle out of this miry bog. But we have a wonderful Lord who is lifting us out of it day by day by his strength and not his own. <coughs> faith, it sounds so simple and yet we know that when we're in tragedy it's the only thing that can help us. And empathy, Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we're tempted in our worst moments to listen to the lie of the world, that God somehow doesn't care. We're reminded that we have a God who showed up. We've just had Christmas. We've just rejoiced in the wonder of the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. God taking human form, sending his son, walking among us. And we read in Hebrews, sympathizing therefore with us in every way. Understanding intimately our weaknesses and our frailties. 
we have a God who looks at the reality of human pain and suffering and says, I'm in. Let me have it. And that gives us great comfort and great confidence. The God that we pray to for help in our times of need is not a remote and distant deity who may or may not hear. He's a God who understands even more intimately than we do the dynamics of pain and suffering. Providence, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Maybe a hard one for us to get our heads around a lot of the time, God's providence. But actually it's deeply comforting to know that the things which shock and surprise us, the body blows which knock us off our feet, never shock God. God is still in control. Christ is still on the throne. And God is always at work for our good. It obviously doesn't mean that everything that happens to us will be good. But it does mean that we can have confidence that there is good for us in it. And let me clarify, that also doesn't mean that when we have friends who are suffering, we instantly say to them, oh, but God's clearly working on this for your good. That's not what you need to hear when you're entering your worst. Wonderfully true, though it is. It may take years to find out what God's goodness was for you in it. We may never know this side of eternity and yet we can have great confidence that he is still providentially working for our good even through our worst what about doubt there's famous verses in mark chapter 9 where jesus says he he is able to heal the man's son if he believes the man says i believe help my unbelief I find it so helpful that in a a book like this, doubt and later sin are included. Because we will doubt God's goodness. We will question God's providence. Just look at the Psalms we've read. Just look at our lives to date. How many times have we had cause to doubt that God really is for us, really loves us, really is working things to our good? Suffering will make us doubt as an instinctive reaction. But a great reminder here that God really really is big enough to deal with our doubts and really faithful to answer our prayer of lord i believe help my unbelief it's really reassuring to know that even on the days when i'm praying lord i can't see or feel your goodness today i'm angry i'm disappointed i'm broken and i cannot see how this situation is working to my good We can know that his steadfast love towards us never fails. And even if we, in that moment, can't move from anguish and lament to rejoicing and hope, we can know that God is faithful and patient in answering those prayers and listening to our lament, and so much bigger than our doubts. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Such a vital prayer to pray in the midst of pain presence is the next one but now thus says the lord we read in isaiah 43 he who created you O jacob he who formed you O israel fear not for i have redeemed you i have called you by name you are mine when you pass through the waters i will be with you and through rivers they shall not overwhelm you when you walk through fire you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you we saw a bit of this in leviticus yesterday didn't we it's a wonder a true wonder that a holy An inapproachable God calls us by name. We will walk through fires. We will face 
harms and difficulties and pain. And yet he walks every step with us and keeps us from ultimate harm. Then sin, Romans 6.23, the weeds of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, Cameron Cole, very realistic in including this in his 12 truths. Sin is always a reality, always a temptation, and maybe never more so than in our times of deepest darkness. Because it is easy when we feel like we've lost everything to see God as having not upheld his end of the bargain. I've served you, I've gone to church, I've given up on the things of the world, I've done this, I've done that, and yet you're still taking everything away from me. Clearly, following you, God, is not worth it. And most certainly, the temptation will creep in to be bitter. To be angry at God, to resent him. To be angry with the world and resent them. It doesn't help. Any one of us who's ever struggled with bitterness will know that while it feels good for a while, while we feel really righteous and vindicated in it, it doesn't help. Amazingly, sin never helps. Sin never makes things better. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus that comforts and sustains through tragedy and not the enticing and false promises of sin. Sin only ever leads to death. The grace of the Lord Jesus can only bring life. It's so important to remember that as a warning, a corrective against our tendency towards bitterness. Again, that's not easy. That doesn't mean we ought not to lament. It doesn't mean that it'll come naturally. But it's so important to remember. What about joy? God promises in Jeremiah 31, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. We, I think, struggle with joy because we don't understand it. We instantly read joy and we think happiness, feeling really good. Joy can include that and yet goes so much deeper. It's not happiness. It's not circumstantial. Joy is something in the Bible which is rooted in who God is and what God has done. It is a joy in the nearness we can know to God no matter what we may be going through. Why else would it be that the psalmists we were reading from earlier, their, cir- their circumstances don't change one jot, and yet their joy <coughs> increases exponentially? It's because they're more and more conscious of who God is and their nearness to him that they rejoice, not that their circumstances have changed. Service, number 11, nearly there, Philippians 1, 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why is service important? Well, because some of us will know, many of us will discover, that when we enter our worst, we will be tempted to think the question, what's the point? How can life go on? Everything I've been living for has just been removed from me. What's the point? The point in tragedy is the point in all of life. God continuing his good work in us until he brings it to completion. God using us to speak the truth in love to his people and maybe even using our pain and tragedy and the lessons that we learn through them to bring comfort to others. I've been so grateful for God's kindness to me in 
one particular instance in my life where I got some quite devastating news. And without having any time to react, really, uh, that afternoon I had to go out and lead a Bible study. And that evening I had to go to uh, another Bible study that I wasn't leading but was taking part in and ended up sitting next to someone who was quite difficult and had to show real patience to them. God was so kind to me on that day, reminding me that though, in a very real way, not to be overdramatic, the bottom had just fallen out of my world, yet there was still a point. Yet I was still privileged to be able to speak the truth in love, to serve others. When we're ever tempted to think that we've got nothing to keep us going, we can know that serving God, knowing him, building up his people is always his plan for us and always a good thing to do and therefore there's always meaning when we can be tempted to feel like there's none. And lastly, and most gloriously of all, heaven. Revelation 21.4 God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Heaven is for real. And that doesn't just give us the comfort of knowing that lost loved ones, if they trust in Christ, go there. Even more so, that the sure knowledge it brings us that God will one day make all things new. The Jesus Storybook Bible talks about it like this, that one day God will make all the sad things come untrue. So it's beautiful. We have a certain hope of a world in which we'll never feel the loss of value of losing out in our careers. A world in which we will never feel the pain and rejection and the loneliness of relational breakdown. A world in which we'll never again taste the bitter sting of death. It's a glorious truth. And it's a truth which people will often respond to by asking us, well, what difference does that make to me in the here and now? I would humbly suggest it makes all the difference in the world. That we know that this world is not all there is to it. And that even when it seems that all is lost, we can always trust that God is at work to redeem and to restore all things, to make all things new. I don't know how I would do it if I didn't absolutely believe that was true. I don't know how people can have any meaning in their life at all especially in tragedy, if they don't fully believe that Christ is risen from the dead and that one day we'll go to be with him in glory. Just one more story to illustrate this. It was shared at a conference I was at once, a guy who came to faith because of the witness of his sister. She was really sporty and active, uh, loves running and playing tennis and lots of things. Very tragically, she uh, had a, a stroke age 21 and left her paralyzed uh, in the entire left side of her body. She died several months after that. And this guy wasn't a believer at the time. And he was furious with his sister for her faith. How could you possibly, possibly believe in a good God when he's allowed this to happen to you? And her answer, what led him to come to faith, what has stuck in my head all these years, when I see Jesus, I will run to him. That is the difference that heaven makes. That is the difference that resurrection makes. That no matter how weighed down we may feel by pains of many kinds, even in the midst of our worst, we can know that one day we will see Jesus and run to him. Now to give me a chance to blow my nose and cry, 
let's get into discussion groups again and just read over those again, very quick overview of 12 pretty big truths. Just discuss, does, do any of these surprise you? Do any of them particularly resonate with you? And is there anything here that you think you may find particularly helpful in times of difficulty and pain? About five minutes to discuss that and then a wee bit more from me. Okay. So, come back together once again. Um, obviously, there's lots to talk about and dealing with these kinds of topics. Uh, let's keep talking uh, over the course of the week. Uh, please do come and grab me, anyone on team. Uh, keep talking to each other. Uh, these things are really important. Uh, I wanted to say an additional note on resurrection. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to read uh, 1 Thess 4, 13 to 18. Um, I won't say much about these verses, but they are, I think, so they've become really precious to me, uh, and I, I know to many as well, in times of great difficulty, especially in times of grief and bereavement. I want to draw out four things from them, but I'll just read them first. This is Paul writing to a church who... Uh, have recently lost members of their church and have been confused by that. They thought Christ was going to come again before anyone would die. And so they've been feeling quite unsettled by losing loved ones. Paul writes to them, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Four things to say. They're on your handout. Importantly, we grieve, but we do so with hope. Whether our grief is the real grief of losing lost loved ones, or whether our grief is the more day-to-day -day grief of experiencing pain, of a, the pain of a broken world, we ought to grieve. We ought not to pretend that everything's okay. We ought to confront pain and suffering and acknowledge them for what they are. We, it is right that we grieve and acknowledge pain. But we never do so in a despondent way without the hope of the gospel. Even when we're facing death, we are able to grieve with those who have real hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. We have confidence in the Lord's work. It is him, it is he who will return one day. It is he who shall descend and who will bring those who trust in him to be with him. It's wonderful, isn't it? If you've ever been to the, the funeral of a believer, a sad though that occasion always is, grieve though we do. I always find it so deeply comforting when the minister is able to say something along the lines of, this person has fallen asleep. We'll go to be with them again one day. That's the real comfort that these verses give us, that because of the Lord's work, because Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, we have every confidence that the Lord will take with him all of us who believe in Christ. And so we have the comfort of knowing that we will always be with the Lord. That young woman I spoke about earlier who ran to the arms of Jesus on the day that she died. 
but we'll all have that joy one day. That one day, no matter what burdens we're faced with in life along the way, one day we'll leave them behind and run into the arms of Jesus and know him and enjoy him perfectly and forever. And therefore, we can encourage one another with these words. That's what Paul commands here, the big therefore in verse 18. Whatever we may be going through, whatever our friends may be experiencing in the days, the months, the years ahead, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead means that we always have cause for encouraging one another. As we draw to a close in this time, it's worth thinking, how can I, how will I encourage my fellow believers with these truths when they're going through difficulty. And as we think about that, I want us to start to think about what all this will mean for us now, because I really want to impress upon us all the importance of not waiting until we're in the miry bog to start to work out what all this means in the Christian life. I'm convicted of how often I will turn to worldly notions when I'm going through something hard, whether that's a cancelled train or a sleepless night or something else. People from Northern Ireland have this horrible habit of saying all these terrible things happening in their lives. They're going, but sure. And that's kind of what Ulster comfort extends to. And I find myself saying it all the time. Instead, we have an opportunity each day to see every crisis, however big or small, as an opportunity to learn more and to lean more into the steadfast love of God and to trust in his promises. I I hope that in the last hour or so, we've seen how God really can and does sustain us in our worst. And that is true no matter how bad our worst may be. So as we draw to a close, we need to start thinking about how we will allow these truths to help us now. How will I allow all of this to help me in the normal stresses and pressures of the semester that lies ahead? How will resurrection hope sustain me when my crush doesn't like me back? What will it look like to lean on God's promises when I get a much lower mark in that exam that I was banking on? How will I respond with joy instead of bitterness when all of my friends get their ideal grad job, but I spend a year at home living with my parents? How does God's providence comfort me when I get injured and have to sit out the rest of the sports season? These things sound trivial, especially when we've been thinking in terms of grief and loss, but we know they're not. When we're in these things, when they are our worst, they really hurt, they really confuse us, and they really weigh us down. And so each and every one of those situations, and many more like them, things that we're likely to face even in the next few weeks are opportunities for us to learn what it means to rely more fully on God's promises and trust more completely in his steadfast love. You'll see there's another discussion question on your sheet. We'll we'll not do that now, but I do want you to reflect on it and maybe in discussion groups bring it up again and chat about it there. How can I put all this into practice today to prepare me for what might come tomorrow? How can I get used now to align the dynamics of resurrection, of new life, of gospel comfort, have the final word in all my struggles and straits, such that they'll be the natural reflex of my heart and mind when the really difficult days come? 
as we draw to a close then, I just want to underline that main point that I said at the start. The only things that will comfort, sustain and redeem trial and tragedy are the simple core truths of scripture. We should be really thankful for all of the other wonderful kindnesses God shows us when we're going through hard times. The rich blessings of loving family and friends, the, the um, rich blessings of attentive and skilled and compassionate doctors and nurses. But it's only Christ himself, who we know we can never lose, who will never forsake us, who we can therefore turn to always and know the comfort that he brings. Pain and suffering in our lives will be real. But as we remember the gospel and look to Jesus risen from the dead, that we always have confidence that God is really, truly and unfeelingly good. As we draw to